Abby. And I'm Allie. And it's about time for true crime. Hey. Hi. Guys. 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 People. Welcome back to your favorite podcast about time for true crime, where we talk all things true crime and podcast and cats and makeup and murder and TV shows and documentaries and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll never be able to do it. Abby can pretty much sound like a good variety of celebrities. Wow. 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 Oh, yeah. Yours is... I I do the better Owen Wilson. You do but, a great Owen Wilson. But you Wilson. do the Jennifer Coolidge and you do the Ariana Grande. You make me want a hot dog real bad. Real bad. <laughs> wow. You sound like the 4th of July. <laughs> I love her. I'm taking the dog. <laughs> that one lives rent free in my house. Like anytime I go over somewhere and have you guys ever been to like a party and you don't know people there really... Um, and even if you do, you just go over to the animal until you're comfortable enough to talk to the people. Cause yep. like I hang out with people's pets a lot more than I hang out with people. Yes. Um, and every time I go somewhere that I'm like, I like that dog. I'm like, I'm taking the dog. I'm taking the dog. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Oh, uh, you guys, you guys, I, we sure hope your week is going a whole hell of a lot better than ours. We definitely do. But this is the highlight of our week for sure. It's so nice to sit and forget about everything and just talk some true crime. Talk some true crime. Talk dirty to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Talk true crime to me. One of my friends gave me a sticker that says that. Ooh. Shout out Haley. It's very cute. Nice. But um, we are probably not going to spend a ton of time chit-chatting around because we're not sure that you guys want to be over in the same boat as us this week, but we will offer you a plethora of things to think about. First and foremost would be to rate, review, follow, and all of that good stuff, not only wherever you listen to our podcast, but also on Instagram, babies. Of course. And maybe you might just want to tell a friend, maybe share one of our posts, repost something. I'm just saying, I mean, hey, you do you, but if I were you. But if it was me... I would definitely go on and part of that is because we do have like polls and things for you guys to interact on so that we can format our content accordingly. So if you want something, you just got to tell us. We're here for you, baby. And that's how you tell us. Whether you are driving, whether we you are in the shower, you naked slut, Ooh. whether you are, I don't know, are you going to work? You're going home from work. Are you listening to us to get through Work. Are you That's getting ready me. in the morning? Are you doing your skincare routine? Are you taking off your makeup that you're putting on? Because, baby, you got to do that. Please get your eyelashes. There's so much bacteria that can get caught up in there. Use micellar water, only the one with the pink cap. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And also, we're going to talk about some Girl Scout stuff. We really are. We are. So I know we're going into part two of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Big fat rip to my heart. And also, you guys, apologies for the first round of that audio that went up. It was very crackly, but Allie and I are fixing. We are working through that production error issue. And also, it was a very stormy night, which really fit the mood of what we were talking about, but was definitely picked up on the mics which i don't know good thing or bad thing i don't know it's just it is what it is it's human we don't have a studio we don't have anything 
fun or fancy. We are quite literally sitting on squeaky bar stools yep. in my kitchen. That's it. And you know what? I will say it was a good learning experience. We figured out what not to do. But, <laughs> we uh, figured out how to make a whole lot extra work for ourselves. Oh my gosh. You have no idea how long it took me to edit to get to where we were. But all of that being said, we are going to get it fixed. But also all of that being said, I really want to talk about the Girl Scouts because we've been talking about awful, awful Girl Scout camp things. And I want to talk about some awesome, awesome Girl Scout camp it's things. It's true. I think when we wrap this up, it will not be the time to talk no. about that. But we're not shitting on the Girl Scouts by any means. But as a former Girl Scout sits in my kitchen, <laughs> I would I want her to share some of the fun things about it and yes. hear about it because I, as not a Girl Scout, cannot relate to that. So for those of you who are interested in post-Girl Scout murder, Girl Scout camp experiences, as I'm sure this had a lot of influence in a lot of places, but um, certainly a lot of people <laughs> like picked up on the, you know what, we should sort of tighten this shit up kind of train. A lot of Girl Scout camps are very fun. So these days, most of them are not hundreds of acres. That's pretty rare. But... If they are, most of it is not inhabited by people and there are actual security precautions, which we love. When I worked as a Girl Scout camp counselor, I actually worked with one of my very best friends who I've known since I was like a few months old. We went to camp together as babies, like literal seven, eight year olds going to like our first sleepaway camp. And we were like, we we were like, we want to be camp counselors. And we got old enough to be counselors in training, which is like CIT. So you still go, but you learn like more of the ropes. And then you go as counselors and you get like paid. Right. But we went and we worked together. So that was a very fun time. But we went to a little camp sort of by where both of us lived out in the Midwest, and it was so sweet. It wasn't huge. Everybody there actually got along pretty well. Like, there are a few, there's always a few people in different places that are like, "Mm, I don't really want to be here, but I'm here. Yeah. And you can't always vouch for all of them, but pretty much everybody. And I, I honestly don't even think there was any issues with anyone that was like an issue, but like it was like a little family. It was cute. We all like lived together and with Girl Scouts, they do a lot of um, like abroad programs. So we'd have counselors, employees of Girl Scouts from other countries in the world come and swap with us. Oh, that's so cool. So like someone would go over to like an Australian camp. Someone would come over to the U.S. And so I've got friends in Ireland and Scotland and England and Australia and New Zealand. Look I don't know if you. I said Australia, but yeah, um, super fun. And also a fun fact is that at least where I was and was common for all of the camps I went to in the Midwest in the early 2000s, we all had camp names. So you don't go by your real name. Like no one would call me Miss Abby, but like I went by my camp name, which was Nutmeg. Oh yeah. my god! Um, very fun. My friend Nutmeg Dabbleson. Nutmeg Dabbleson, indeed. <laughs> well, there is kind of a fun inside joke on that, which was when we were making our like binders for the year. Allie knows this. You guys probably don't know this, but I actually really like to do calligraphy. I like to write really pretty letters and like. She's so good at it, you guys. I was practicing, so as a kid, I wasn't as good, but I would like practiced and all of that so 
on my binder, I called it my mullet binder. It was business in the front, party in the back. So it was a very beautiful <laughs> chic front that said nutmegs binder. And in the back, it was a freaking party. But in the front where I wrote it in cursive, I was like adding little dots around, you know, just like for the sake of it. And I accidentally ended up putting an umlaut over the U, which is like those two dots. And it kind of makes the U look like a smiley face. Yes. Well, that meant it would have technically been pronounced Newt Meg because of how the umlaut ends. <laughs> oh, God. And so whenever kids would be like, what's your real name? I bet I know your real name. And I was like, okay, guess. And they'd tell me and I'd be like, Mm-mm, it's Newt Meg. But I let my friends call me Nutmeg. Oh, <laughs> girl. <laughs> I love that. That's so cute. But they're so cute. And you guys, you can do archery. You can get swimming. You can do kayaking. And that's in like the flattest state in this country. So like there's a bunch you could do if it's not just straight flat land. I know. But there are good things. You sing songs. You play games. People don't get murdered. You do tie dye. Well, and that's what's really sad because in part one, like we talked about, that's what all of these girls were looking forward to right right some of them especially denise and i think she's the one that that hits my heart the most because i feel like i identify most with her where she was a little like apprehensive she didn't really want like she was a little concerned to go she kind of like clung to her mom's leg she was a little like my friends aren't going to be there and so i wanted to go and now that i'm going to have to go alone i don't know that i really want to go and just that was me and then she like was pleading like can you please come pick me up it's awful and when she's pleading in her little letter and like please come pick me up I don't like it it's awful I made some friends but can you please come get me your loving child Denise Milner like first and last name just want I think that's what I connect with the most because part of me just has to feel like maybe she had a feeling well I think there's that. We also talked about, was it Michelle who like hugged her dad a little extra tight before she left? That's what I mean. And I think that I would probably identify most with Lori Mm -hmm. out of the three because I was like always excited. I always had multiple things I wanted to do. And I like I was a nuisance. I mean, I had ADHD that was untreated and anxiety that was untreated, but I was like, what are we doing next? What are we? I need to be prepared. I need to make sure I have my stuff. Like, what are we doing? What's next? What are we? Like, Aww, constantly. But you were like, go, go, go. Let's do it all. Yeah. And I was into it. I was like, I want to do everything. Aww. And I think that also checked out. Like, there were weeks, you know, my friend and I who went every year, that was our thing. Like, we did that together. So we'd get together and we'd like look at the little catalogs and circle the sessions that we wanted to go to. And then moms would have to say, okay, here's the amount that you can do. And we'd have to pare down. So, like, I've been there, but I think part of what got me is like last time or the first time we talked about it, I was like, they they didn't even get through night one. Like they didn't even get to do any of the things that make it the experience that it is. No, and nobody did because by the next morning they were all on buses and they didn't know why. Right. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Things still happen at camp. Like there's always going to be an emergency, but in my 20 plus years of experiencing it, The emergencies have been like, I ate peanut butter and I have to find my EpiPen and I broke an ankle. Yeah. I got a little cut on my knee. Right. Or like this guy, not guy, but like, you know, this little girl found a little toad and she lost it and now she's sobbing. Like, you know, that's like the crises (laughs) that you're used to. Right. Or like, because it's a camp and you're outside, the worst of it is, oh my gosh, 
I found a mouse in the bathroom or like yeah. a dead deer out in the woods. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for the little girls who didn't make it through the night. It's heartbreaking for the girls who made it through the night and couldn't make it through the week. And it's heartbreaking for everyone in between, except for the fucker that did it. Well, because exactly. Because it was entirely unnecessary. Well, then I think this is a great segue to get started. Yes, please. I'm already ramped. <laughs> so if you are skipping, skippers, stop skipping. Swiper, no swiping. Skippers, no skipping. Hi. Hi, hello, and welcome back. Oh, hi. To your oh-so-favorite true crime podcast. Uh, me? Today, we are getting into our second and final installment of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. And if you are just joining us and you haven't listened to part one yet, I'd encourage you to hit pause, go back and listen to that. We'll wait. We'll be right here, girlfriend. Don't worry about it. We're not going anywhere. But to recap, because it has been a week, um, we got to know these three beautiful babies. We got to know Lori Farmer, Michelle Gousset, and Denise Milner. We read the letters that they wrote the first night. We discussed how the bodies were discovered the next morning and that the news had broadcast the details before the families could even be notified. We covered what information the autopsies yielded. We discussed the initial investigation and interviews with counselors and campers who were in attendance that night. And we left you with this. What was found at the cave, a roll of masking tape that matched the tape found in the flashlight at the scene, a piece of newspaper, which was the other half of what was found inside the flashlight. We found some photos of some women. And that was a bit of a mystery. OSBI was trying to put all of that together, try to determine where they could pull these things from, where did these women come from. And that's when a photographer piped up and said, um, actually, yeah, those photos that you just broadcast on the news, those were my photos. I'm a full-time prison guard, <laughs> part-time photographer, and the only other person in the world that would have access to those photos was the darkroom technician that was an inmate at the time at the prison I had it developed named... Jean Leroy Hart. I do just have to say, if I was that photographer, I would have been like, you think my photos are good? <laughs> <laughs> you swiper, no swiping. <laughs> you took them. Guy, at least give me credit. I would have signed them for you. Seriously. But, and I'm sure to be the women in those photos, it would have been like haunting because why did that make the cut? Right. Why did you take that? Why do you have that photo of me? That's just, that's so Especially violating. knowing what it's connected to, you it's know? It's very violating and very bad. It's not like, this sweet Mr. Rogers found this photo and thought people looked happy. No, no, not quite. So let's pick up where we left off with Mr. Hart. Okay. Gene Leroy Hart. He was an inmate at that prison, the, the Oklahoma State Prison in Granite, Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. um this was in the 1960s and when he was growing up he resided where you ask oh locust grove the very tiny town where the girl scout camp was his mother lived a half mile away from the crime scene at this time and growing up hart was a star football player he was kind of popular in high school again small town everybody knows each other everybody knew him his coach said that he was just like this excellent team player and great teammate and encouraged his fellow teammates and how awesome that was. And digging into his past, the investigators found out that Gene Leroy Hart was not just some amazing, 
you know, high school athlete and then went on to live a great life either. I was going to say, you know, everybody has a long story, but that math wasn't mathing. So that makes sense. The math's not mathing. And they also found out that um, obviously he had served a prison sentence because he was the darkroom technician in the prison. And that was not a employer spot. That was an inmate spot. Right. And they found out that his prison sentence was not for something, I would say, not so bad in terms of like a marijuana possession or like a criminal threatening threatening or like a petty crime, something yeah, where petty larceny. there might be a few years and then not yeah. a whole lot, right? Um, He was actually there because he had committed a vicious attack on two pregnant 19-year-old women on June 4th, 1966, huh? where, where he kidnapped them at gunpoint. Huh? Yes. He kidnapped them, the two of them, pregnant together. I believe they were they were either friends or walked out together or something like that, but Aww. he got them at the same time. He took them in his car to a secluded part of the woods. And the part of the woods is the same woods area near the camp, mind you. Oh. He bound them with rope and duct tape, and he tied them in such a way that if they tried to move, they would tighten the rope around their own necks and they would choke themselves out. So they there was absolutely no resisting they were able to do because they would only hurt themselves. After he had oh them subdued, God. he raped them both. After he was done with them, he took their eyeglasses, he duct taped their mouths shut, and covered them with brush and leaves and left them for dead. Miraculously, they survived. And they were actually, I think one of them was able to get loose and let the other one loose, and they were able to positively identify him as their attacker. Good. I think he washed his hands of them thinking that, oh, yeah, they're like bound and left for dead. He'd also tried to cover their nose with tape, too. So he literally like expected them to suffocate. So either they wouldn't be able to breathe that way or because they'd try to move, they'd end up killing themselves on their own. But either way, he just put like sticks and leaves over them and left. Nice. Real fucking nice. And he took the eyeglasses. Weird. Does he have like a kink for not seeing? apparently and in fact i'd be like yes give me those glasses i cannot look at myself in the mirror well not only that but they said that he put them on so like he would take their glasses and then he would wear them would it be like look at how hot i am in your glasses like this is not what the hell and again (laughs) they were able to identify him one of the things that stood out to them the most was that he made a low guttural sound that didn't sound human. Oh, and just like that other counselor. Remember, a very similar sound was heard, but we'll get there. Okay. Now, this secluded area he brought them to was the same farmland as Jack Schroff's farmhouse. Again, the man who he, he or whoever it was, supposedly stole items from. Right. And who then, Jack, poor Jack, his face was plastered in the newspaper as the killer and then oh. they were like oh yeah oopsie but it, it was our it was too it was too far gone and the man was so troubled by it he was hospitalized so pretty bad he deserves a break but gene leroy hart was 22 years old when he committed this attack on these women only 22 only 22 and let's take a step back from how atrocious this crime is because it's horrendous 
but just analyze this and compare it to what we know happened at Camp Scott. So we have a kidnapping element of more than one young woman at a time. Yeah. Okay. That checks out in both. He whisked them away to a secluded part of the woods in Locust Grove. This also checks out. He bound the women with a combination of rope and duct tape. Also checks. Checks. There was a sexual assault component of more than one person. Also checks. There's a low guttural sound that's reported. That checks. And this happened in June in the dead of night. Also checks. checks. So there are a lot of similarities here. And I didn't see them all really laid out that way, one after the other. But I don't know how you could miss it. Yeah. So this all sounds pretty good. So in October of 1966, Gene was sentenced to 30 years in prison for his crime. Okay. Now, I will I will go back and forth between calling him Hart and Gene. Yeah. But Gene Leroy Hart, no, you know what I mean. So, but that was in 66. At 22, which would mean that he would get out as a spry 52-year-old and be able to do it all again. But it gets worse. Because you know how we say that good behavior in prison isn't really good behavior or isn't always good behavior because it isn't actually an indicator of overall good behavior? And do you remember why we say that? Is it because when you're someone who hurts women and children, there's no women and children to hurt in the place that they're locking you away? And so because you haven't hurt a woman or a child, they think you're on good behavior, but they are failing to recognize that there's no women or children to hurt. Have you been listening to a true crime podcast? (laughs) I've been making one. So, (laughs) yes, this victimology doesn't exist in the prison that they're in. So if you're a man in prison and your victim type, your ideal victim is a younger woman... That is exactly what you don't have. So you are going to be a star inmate. You will, yes, sir, please and thank yous, be nice, maybe flirt with like somebody if you have to, what have you. That doesn't matter. He's going to behave excellently because there's nobody there for him to bind and assault. Right. Okay. So because you don't have anybody to kidnap, beat, bind, or assault. Or rape. You're going to be, um, like, pretty good. Yeah. Um, There, which is actually, like, exactly what happened. Because he was a model prisoner. And he behaved so well that he actually got paroled after two years and four months of a 30-year sentence. He only served 28 months. 30 years, the original sentence, would have been 360 months. 28 months. I am disgusted, but I am not surprised. My jaw is literally on the floor. What a disservice. It's like, like, hear me out, right? I I am not comparing these two things in morality. That is not my point at all. But it's like taking someone who loves, like fucking loves Chips Ahoy cookies. You know, eats the whole thing every time you go to the store before the first night is over. The Chips Ahoy's are fucking gone. And then you take away Chips Ahoy Mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, my God, you haven't done that in so long. Good for you. You're great. You're growing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, there's just no fucking Chips Ahoy. Like what? Put a Chips Ahoy in front of him, though. He'll fucking inhale it. Yep. Exactly. It makes me it makes me literally want to scream. When he was paroled. Do you think he got himself into counseling, obtained gainful employment, paid his taxes, and took care of himself by himself? Yeah. No. 
<laughs> so just months after he was released, he began committing crime again, this time burglaries. And here's where it gets a little odd. Breaking into people's homes in the middle of the night, standing over them while they slept, and stealing items from their nightstand. So things that were right next to their mm-hmm. face while they slept, there was this appeal of that violation of while someone's sleeping, you enter their home, you stand over them, you stand next to them, you take things that they leave on their bedside every night that you know as soon as they wake up they will notice is missing. Um. He got off on that. Well, and that's also reminiscent of our murders. But anyway, keep going. He did get caught for this. Okay. And he was sentenced to something like 306 years or something like that because of the all the violations on top of, you know, he broke parole. And right. con- considering the horrific crimes he committed before, that this on top of it apparently was the icing on the cake, but... If we analyze the similarities like we did before with his first crime, breaking into places where people slept, creeping around and stealing items from right next to them, and then disappearing, is pretty on brand for who we believe committed the three murders. Right. It's as if the Camp Scott murders were a combination of these burglaries and the attack on those two women. Absolutely. Because we have all of it, and... I mean, I know we talked about like the appeal of maybe them noticing that something is missing the immediate next morning after waking up. But I also think that there was probably an appeal for him of like almost playing God, like, haha, I can't hurt you, but I didn't. I just took your glasses instead. Oh, Which yeah. like does kind of hurt someone. Don't get me wrong. Glasses are fucking expensive, but not their being. But it's, but it's that violation. And when you get off on violating people, it's like maybe you've got more options to do that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When it's not just like, I want the power of this. It's like, oh, wait, no, actually, I want you to know that I have the power. And it's a game. Yeah, it's, it's sick. I hate that. So after he was incarcerated, he was transported from the prison to a local jail jail for some hearing that he was to attend. And while there, he fucking sawed through the bars and escaped. What? Escaped. And then he was caught, incarcerated again. And then he escaped again. This time, he wasn't caught. And this was for burglaries? This was, yeah, from the jail. He just, this was like, once he was reincarcerated, he had some hearings he had to go to because they were like... They were like, hey, now, we gave, we gave you parole after not even three years of your 30-year sentence. But, but these you burglaries, said you wouldn't. We draw the line, meester. Come on now. And then they- Listen, listen. <laughs> the brutal assault and near killing of two pregnant teens will let it slide. But taking this guy's fucking glasses. But you promised. You said you wouldn't do that anymore. And that's just not nice. Jean. Come on now. Be a man of your word. So. The fuck? He's at the prison. Obviously can't escape. Goes to the jail. And that's where he's able to escape. Not once, but twice. And on the second breakout he did, they can't find him. He's in the wind. He's out in the world. And much to the frustration of all local law enforcement, they could not find the guy. The sheriff was bullshit because it's 
he's the sheriff. He's the head law enforcement officer in that area. And not only is he embarrassed, but he's furious. Right. Because not once, but twice this happens. And now you can't recollect. And now he's gone. So when they go out into the community, nobody will talk. Because it's such a small, tight-knit community that protects their own that's right and the townspeople either really didn't know where he was or they were helping hide him and ultimately there was a reward posted for his capture but nobody came forward so the photos found in the cave were a direct link to gene the other items found in the cave were a direct link to the camp and the trash bag and the newspaper found with the flashlight were a direct link to the crime scene So we've got all of these things linked together now. And as investigators are looking at all of this, now more than ever, they feel like they really need to find him, even though he's been on the loose and they've been trying to find him this whole Mm -hmm. time. Now there's like more of an onus on that. So the largest manhunt in Oklahoma history began for Gene Leroy Hart at this time. It's important to note here what other issues were ongoing at the time and I can't really speak in much detail to these issues, but they are important to consider nonetheless. At this time and in this area of Oklahoma, there was a lot of animosity between Native people and law enforcement. There were protests and movements that sprouted from all of this, and Locust Grove's population consisted of many Cherokee people, and of those was Gene Leroy Hart. He was Native. Okay. Now, even though it was confirmed that he had committed that initial vicious attack on those two pregnant women prior, and even though he had evaded law enforcement and broken out of incarceration, many people of Locust Grove still liked him and respected him. Okay. Because in that idea, it was like he pulled one over on them. He got away with it or whatever. Or they just didn't think he was that bad because they grew up with him and he was a good guy. Okay. And he was known as this nice guy. He was attractive and smart. He was the star of his high school football team. And the same families he grew grew up with and knew were the same ones that still lived there to this day. Right. And as this manhunt began for him, some of the Cherokee population viewed him as a piece of a bigger picture. And many spoke out defending his innocence. One of them even said, I know Gene like I know me. And he's not capable of that crime. And I'm not either. When it came to the Girl Scout murders. Okay. Because now people are looking for this dude. Like, not right. only have they been looking for him, right? Or at least, low. At least the sheriff's office, right? But now you've got other law enforcement agencies. Because the sheriff's office is not the primary on this case. OSBI is. Well, and also, again, everything he did was bad and warranted in and of itself finding him. But now you had the bodies of three children. And a lot of people still said... He wouldn't do this. I know him. Maybe he's made mistakes, whatever. But he wouldn't do this. And for a lot of people and part of a movement, whether they liked him or not, they were like, you don't have enough to say that he did this. And this is an attack on Cherokee people overall. So one narrative was that there were so many things that tied him to the cave and then from the cave to the crime scene that there was little doubt in the eyes of investigators that it could be someone else. Right. And another narrative, one that many Cherokee townspeople subscribe to, was that Gene had escaped prison in 1973 and he embarrassed and undermined the county sheriff. And it had been four years and they were no closer to finding him at this he time. He was gone for four years? Four years. I'm telling you, this guy went in the wind. And the, the best of it is, the shit of it, is he was right in that town. Are you kidding? So people knew. Do you know what I'm saying? Someone had to know. 
I think several people knew because you can't be in the same town they're looking for you in without being hidden that they didn't find you. But they're saying you know. you embarrassed the sheriff. You you undermined him. You him you humiliated him. He's frustrated. He's infuriated because you got out. And you were this dangerous criminal that he put behind bars. And not only did you get out, you stayed out. And so a lot of people were saying that because they were no closer to finding him, the thought was that the sheriff was just aching for something to pin on Hart. And what better than a child triple murder? Wow. The belief there was that this crime was committed. There wasn't much effort on law enforcement's part to look for other suspects. It was still all pinned on him. And I'd love to hear what our listeners think because I can see how they got to him. Yeah. I mean, what I have on it is really just, I'm an Occam's razor girly. The simplest answer is usually the case. Oh, yeah. You know? And while, sure, absolutely, I'm not even refuting that there are other people that can be looked at, could be looked at, should be looked over. I also understand the order of operations and like, I'm going to check this guy off my list before I move on. But I do think that, and I don't know, so I'm not saying that this is the truth, but if there was any semblance of a bruised ego being the motive, that's not okay. That's not, that's unethical. It's not. Oh, we'll get there. It does not belong in law enforcement. No. But that is a fair point if that's what they're seeing. I just see how they got to him and why they'd pursue that until that was exhausted. Oh, yeah. And we'll get into that because on one hand, if this is a bruised ego issue, then if you think about it, you can see where the people are coming from, where it's like, you've been looking for this guy. Yeah. If you're the townspeople and you are in the camp of something's fishy with law enforcement. Right. And you're suspicious of the sheriff and you say, hmm, this guy, for whatever reason, Gene Leroy Hart escapes and can't be found. What better way to find him than use the most polarizing, upsetting tragedy in Oklahoma history of three babies being murdered to get people out of their houses and looking for him. Right. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. they're saying this is a this is a pawn in his game, right? Mighty convenient, yeah. Now, I also want to say that there are Cherokee citizens who believed that he was guilty and were discouraged and infuriated that one of their own had done something so evil and were disgusted that this was lumped in with the movement that they were passionate about. It was like his involvement undermined the point that they were making and they didn't claim him. Sure, he may be Cherokee, but like like across all different demographics and characteristics, people make their own choices. They aren't representative of a culture or a heritage or anything. So all of this to say that it was a hot topic for hundreds of reasons, but ultimately what this conversation should have been about the entire time in this investigation was finding the monster or monsters that stole three little girls. Right. And personally, I don't know how you can ignore what he had done leading up to this, even if you don't think he committed the Girl Scout murders, right? Yeah. Even if you think he had nothing to do with it, you completely believe that he was, let's just say he's on another planet at that time. Can you really hang your hat on the statement that he's a good guy? I don't think so. He kidnapped and raped two women, tied them up and left them for dead. Once he was out, he broke into homes and stole from people. 
It's not like he has this spotless record that screams innocence and wrongful conviction. Intentions grew more and more because of this, and many people in the community refused to cooperate with investigators, and it led investigators to believe that they knew more than they were letting on, and so they right. became more suspicious. And in that way, it is kind of like a vicious circle, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, again, Ali said it, but I'll also say I can't speak to whatever was going on at this specific time, but I do know from you know, the classes I've taken that there have been historically a lot of issues between governmental U.S. law enforcement and reservation policy because they're pretty... Because they differ. Yeah, they're very different. But, you know, it's kind of sticky to see who overlaps who, who's got what authority. And specifically for people on reservations, I know for a long time, a lot of them had a lot of wrong things done to them and you know losers don't write the history so we i'm sure don't even know the half of it well and that's just it i was just gonna say like you know you were saying one person does not represent everybody and you decide that as a group when you say we're keeping him hidden he is our own this is ours if that's what happened we don't know right and is that is that what you want to hang your hat on is that the leg that you have to stand on? Is that really what you feel? Is he your best representation? Is he who you want to defend? Right. Because you don't have to. (laughs) Well, and the thing is, is that the belief for many of them in this camp believe that it was because the sheriff, Sheriff Weaver, didn't exactly look good when Gene escaped and wasn't found. Right. So he's not thrilled. And I agree No doubt it is a mark on your record when an inmate escapes right from under your nose and you literally can't find him and he's not moved. Right. Like he's not left. He didn't flee the state. He Hmm. was right there in your backyard the whole time. That's a kick in the balls. I get that. But the sheriff's office isn't running the lead on this one. Right. This is so much bigger than the sheriff's office. They weren't, they were so ill prepared with a triple child murder. So this is primarily being investigated by the OSBI or as you know, it it stands for Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. So the sheriff was saying all kinds of weird shit this whole time, but he's not. It's like, I don't want to compare it to this, but I kind of have to. Right. You know, in the office when (laughs) I know you always know a conversation is going to be good when it starts like that. But you know, when. Ryan is like, yeah, Creed wanted a blog and I just knew that the internet couldn't handle it. So I just gave him a Word document and told him it was a blog. And yeah, he's like, even for the internet, it's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I had the sense that the sheriff was so frustrated and had made so many enemies that OSBI like gave him little things to do. Got it. But they wouldn't let him. They gave him a Word document, not a blog. Yes. They didn't give him anything that he could really like meddle with well and ideally if they did their due diligence and noted any potential bias like they're going to be cautious about that i hope well the sheriff started saying all kinds of weird shit like he randomly announced that he'd found the murder weapon and it was like some crowbar that was found like nearby or something like that and osbi was like what the fuck no you didn't like we don't have a murder what are you talking about what the hell? But he just announced that he had it. Like, he was doing his own thing, and he was kind of in his own world. And I'm not saying he's, like, this crazy guy, but I'm saying that, like, he was not the lead on this. He was not who we're looking to. 
And he probably did have some kind of vendetta. I I don't see how he wouldn't or at least really want it to be Jim right. Leroy Hart, right? Even if he's not like trying to write the narrative, he's really hoping that that's what it ends up being. And he's looking for confirmation of that, right? But he's not the one that's making those calls. So to say that all of these people are in agreement, nobody else has this issue with him. Right. They have an issue with finding him now. Because they believe that he, like, because he's a suspect and they'd like to right. rule him out or speak with him. But they don't have this, like, ooh, he slighted us. It's like, no, we had nothing to do with that. We literally don't care. Can we find him now, though? <laughs> like, we just want to solve three child murders. So this is not to say that there aren't very intricate parts at play here and a lot of history that I'm not privy to. But the main focus should always be the three children that were killed. And it's not always the case. But ideally, we just want to find the person or people responsible. Absolutely. Of the OSBI investigators was Agent Harvey Pratt. Now, hey, Harvey, Harvey Pratt is a cool guy. He was indigenous. Some of the staff here were. They were Native American. And um, he actually went into the community and was like, listen, I'm not, I'm not an outsider. I'm one of you. Mm-hmm. I just want to find who hurt these three girls and I got to rule people out. So can you help me? okay and they were like ah yes one of us you know what i mean like he wasn't he wasn't somebody that came in like i'm gonna like bust in the door and i'm gonna demand all of these things he talked to people like people and because of that rapport he built he was able to get more information than anybody else could now he got a lead Mm. and this lead led him to a cabin in cookson hills where Jean Leroy Hart was found and apprehended in April of 1978. Okay. Now, this had almost been a year, though. That's a long time for those families to witness all of that, to see all of that, to hear all of that. That's tough. And also have absolutely no closure. And law enforcement, again, some of whom were of Native ancestry, utilized Native medicine men to aid in the investigation, which I thought was pretty cool. And utilizing these centuries old practices and for their purposes, I think it was just to not lose hope and to try to boost morale and like prayers to deities for help in finding justice. And medicine men were consulted on both sides. So in favor of Jean Leroy Hart and in favor Uh, of the state. Yes. Interesting. And one of these individuals said that if Jean Leroy Hart was guilty but acquitted in court, God would punish him by taking his life early and make him pay for his crimes in the afterlife. Okay. So put that in your pocket. Sure will. On his arraignment day, he being Hart's arraignment day, Sherry and Bo Farmer, Lori's, Lori Farmer's parents, sat in the courtroom and they felt like they were sitting with the man that likely attacked and beat their daughter to death. Ugh. Sherry had tried to make eye contact with him because she just had this gut feeling that if she looked him in the eye and could read his face, her mother's intuition would know if he did it or not. Right. She just was like, I just, got, I, I just need to, I, I will know. I just need to see him. I need to look at him. Jean never looked in their direction. Yeah. Now, he pled not guilty to all charges, and thus trial preparation began. His niece, Kim Baker, said, quote, 
Within the context of the time, Cherokee community members supported my Uncle Gene as someone who was representing the struggle against injustice. And this community got together. They held dinners and events and gathered funds to donate to his defense. And on the other side of it, Bo Farmer had said, like, they looked at us like we were the enemy because we went up there to get more information to find out, to look at this, like, did this man do this? And he's like, pretty much the animosity that he got from all of the people donating to his defense, it was like, you're bad, you're this, because he's this this doctor from Tulsa. Right. So he's from the city, and he's this, like, wealthy man. And it's like... He's a wealthy... Yeah. He'd give all that money away if it meant he could have his little girl again. But he's getting, like, basically shat on, they all are, by a lot of the people that are like, fuck you, he didn't do this. And they're holding these banquets and these, like cookouts and luncheons well in what a fucking awful approach right don't get me wrong i mean if you really think someone's guilty i'm sorry if you really think someone's innocent and you're trying to contribute to that cause if you think this is a good guy if you think this is you know the one you want to back you want to support you say okay this is happening and it's wrong it's injustice it's not right the enemy is not the victim's family nope the victim's family are still victims and they are still hurting. Of course. And one thing that I know, at least from the family and the history that I've had with my, you know, long distance native family members, it's that there is such an emphasis on like spirituality and kindness to people that this just it feels so misrepresented of all of the things that I know to be stood for you know and when people get angry and mm-hmm. they get afraid different sides come out and well, it's and it's awful and this was such a polarizing and in this community right that had like seemingly protected him or at least that's what it looked like because how could you not find this guy for four right. years nobody said anything there were like rewards out for his capture like somebody knew something and nobody said anything well, and I think, too, that it's a very obvious picture of, like, people getting up in arms about something that this is not about. Like, the true context of everything they're saying is not what they're saying, but it's what's in between the lines. And that's just frustrating. It's horrible. Because you know what? Maybe this guy is innocent. Maybe he had nothing to do with it. I don't know. But maybe he had nothing to do with it. And these families are still the enemy while trying to prove justice for their trauma. Because I don't know how to tell this to people, but like wrongful convictions don't just hurt the wrongfully convicted. I mean, they do. Don't get me wrong. They absolutely do. But like now you're leaving families with extra trauma and extra things that have no closure. Like... (laughs) Oh, yeah. Big this time. is so shitty. OK, sorry. My rant's done. No. Well, <laughs> well, we'll get into the trial. Yes. So the trial began in March of 1979. So we're going another year. Okay. And despite several requests by the prosecution to move the trial to a neutral location, they kept it right where it was. OK. So everyone that was on that jury who claimed not to know anything about the Girl Scout murders had obviously had no way of escaping the Girl Scout murders. It happened right there. And this was national news. Right. And they wouldn't move it, which I think is wrong. But they were like, no, no. 
this is the only this is the only place it'll be neutral so this is this is where we're going so okay if everyone's biased does anybody biased seriously yes and <laughs> truthfully in a jury you don't want anyone who strongly believes he's innocent or strongly believes he's guilty you need your jurors who know nothing they need yeah. they know or next to nothing about this case and the trial taking place right where the crime happened and where literally every single person has been talking about it for almost two years is not neutral territory. And if you're able to find somebody who hasn't heard anything, how in touch with their peers and their society that they're, re- that they're representing can they really be? Right. Now, prosecution presented, obviously, their side first. They went with the biological evidence. They had information from the medical examiner. Um, from the autopsies that said that the victims had sperm present and all of the sperm were notably deformed. Yep. I remember that. Now, while Hart was incarcerated awaiting trial, his underwear was sent for testing and sperm was found in his underwear. A little icky, but true. Sure. And the sperm there was also defer- deformed. Huh. And it was believed that that was due to like a semi-botched vasectomy he had a decade beforehand. Oh, but it isn't common for it to be no dysfunctional and deformed. So this was a very unique marker here. Right. And the sequence of events that the prosecution put forward was this. Jean Leroy Hart had been on the loose for four years since escaping the jail, but he never went far because he had local connections. His mom lived locally. He had a lot of friends. This is the place he knew. He didn't know anywhere else. He knew the land very well, mm-hmm. all of the terrain, all of the area, yeah. which is important. They also say that he was very well versed in the woods. He also knew a lot about survival in the woods because of how he grew up. Okay. He would know the paths to take. He would know where the caves were, and he would know how to evade capture on Cherokee land. They say that he broke into the Shroff farm because, you know, the, the duct tape and the rope were missing right they say he broke in there he stole those things and he left a boot mark on the floor and walked to camp scott which was again less than a mile from the farmhouse then they say while the scouts were eating dinner he scampered around the camp and stole items from some of the tents this would include like some of the glasses and the other things that were missing a purse was missing things like that then he waited and waited and waited until everyone was asleep it's the dead of night. People say that the darkness at Camp Scott was unreal just because there is literally no light anywhere. Right. It is pitch black. They say at that point, he made his way back to the camp and with his dull flashlight, peered in tent seven, realized he didn't want that one, left and then approached the last tent where Lori Farmer, Michelle Gousset, and Denise Milner slept. He untied the flaps of the back of the tent and he got inside. It's believed that he bludgeoned Michelle or Lori inside the tent. Now, I believe, this is me, not the prosecution, I believe it had to have been Lori first because it was one. Right. She looked as if she were sleeping when she was found. I believe that she probably was hit, bludgeoned in the back of her head while she slept. Maybe she was sleeping on her side, facing away, and he had a clear... Right, or Angle. stomach or something, yeah. I think the sound of that woke up Michelle and Denise. And I think Michelle, who was a little bit bigger than Lori and now awake, got scared. Yeah. 
And I think she was bludgeoned next. Oh. After witnessing her tent mate die. And then there was Denise. Denise, her core body temperature was warmer than both Lori and Michelle, which meant that she was kept alive a lot longer than the two of them. Which means that we know that she watched them die. Right. And then she was bound and gagged and walked out of her tent. They say that he gags Denise and that he had sex with Lori and Michelle's bodies and then takes their bodies and crams them into their own sleeping bags with the bedding from their cots and carries the sleeping bags out with him. They say that he went about 300 feet away, he put the sleeping bags down, and he raped Denise on top of those sleeping bags. He then strangled her to death. They say he returned to the cave, the one that he'd been squatting in, with some items that he stole from the camp, and that this happened at the same time of year as his previous violent crimes in the same areas as those and in the same manner. They're trying to connect all the dots here. Mm-hmm. So if we're subscribing to this theory, let's take a pause. Try to do this with every case we cover. Try to put myself in the place of people involved. If you're Lori or Michelle, you've literally been woken up to the sound of each other being bludgeoned. Yeah. You are eight or nine years old. Lori was hit in the head one time. And that was fatal for her small frame. I hope she was sleeping. Maybe she heard him come in. I pray she was sleeping. But Michelle had six blows to her head. And that ultimately killed her. There was no way that Denise didn't watch that. No. Because by then they're all awake. And that takes time. watched at least one. So Denise is bound and gagged and terrified watching her two new friends be murdered in front of her. And then she's brought outside, laid on top of their bodies, and raped before she's strangled. And the sheer terror of this, I, this is quite literally the boogeyman in the night. This is your worst campfire horror story. This could be your greatest fear in the world. And this was the reality for three children under 10 years old. And if I'm the killer, I see the tent the furthest away from the rest of the camp. I see the tent with the fewest campers in it. And it also happens to be the tent with the youngest and likely most defenseless camper, Lori Farmer. These were the closest to the woods, furthest from the adults, and had the fewest people. (sighs) That made it easy. So if we go back to the trial, we're going to look at defense. Defense had a different tactic. And it was a good one, let me tell you that. They held a press conference for him in which he was actually present and he spoke. Okay. That's he was, new. He was shockingly kind of charismatic and seemed to have taken the matters seriously. You know, he wasn't obnoxious or arrogant, but he, you know, he really did seem likable and polite and respectful. And if you don't know the background there, you'd strike up a conversation with him at a barbecue or a block party. Oh, hell yeah. You know... They had joked, and you can see the footage of this. How are you being treated in jail? And he said, "My mama always told me you don't talk you don't talk bad about it when you're a guest. I'm a guest in that place. I'm not I'm not saying anything, but you know he was just very yeah. like my mama told me and like you know a little a- smirk kind of made not light of it, but like you know built this rapport and was sort of talking and he 
wasn't this awkward like sniffling weird goon melly yeah yeah he wasn't ghoulish he seemed like a likable guy who was like dealing with the cards he had been dealt okay when the defense team presented their side they aimed at poking holes and instilling suspicion in the jury they discussed the photograph saying that they were in his possession in 1973 but they're saying he didn't leave the prison with them Interesting. They're, they're saying that it must have been planted oh yeah this gave them momentum to take jabs at the hair and semen found at the scene now testimony testimony had said that the hairs looked exactly alike and the sperm had the same characteristics but we are in dna infancy here all that we could say was that they looked the same but they could not say that they were the same right and he goes a lot of things can look alike a lot of things are not the same and they've got a point they do that's a good argument. So after 26 days of testimony and trial. That's a long trial. The jury went to deliberate. And they returned. They did reach a verdict. Not guilty. Yeah. Sobs poured out from both sides of the aisle. The families of the victims had all believed wholeheartedly that he had been the monster in the night who took their children away. And they were absolutely disgusted and in shock that he was found innocent the other side rejoiced and believed that justice had prevailed denise milner's mother betty compared it to the oj trial and she said i remember what had happened to us how the people cheered all they cared about was heart going free it was like they didn't care about what happened at locust grove so she's got people next to her rejoicing happy and she's like how can anyone be happy my child's dead of course and that you're more happy for the movement that this makes for you and not the outcome here and there's still three kids dead and still no one and and the rest of these people are going to wash their hands of it because their guy got off right and i think what she meant was to say again that this was part of a much larger movement it taken on a life of its own and it became more about that than the lives lost and that's got to be really difficult but regardless of the verdict, it didn't really matter a whole lot for Hart because he was sent back to prison to serve the remaining time of his 300-plus-year sentence. Good. He had escaped that in the first place. He wasn't off on that. He was just acquitted of these murders. And so just months after the trial, Hart was in the news again. Okay. And no, he didn't escape the way you think he did. Uh-oh. He had been exercising in the rec yard when he dropped. He died right in the middle of their outdoor time of a heart attack and he was only 34 years old that's a young heart attack it is but any hope of an eventual confession died with him right because the family still believed he was responsible and even though he got off on it this time they'd hoped in time that he might actually tell them what happened but if you think of what the medicine man said right if he's guilty but acquitted he will die young to pay for his crime elsewhere i hope he's right and i just thought that was interesting now a new sheriff was elected and he carefully considered the possibility of multiple attackers due to a few things the one thing that they really leaned on was different size shoe prints found in the tent yeah that's a big one remember Hart was acquitted so it's still an open case so this sheriff isn't chasing ghosts he's really trying to solve it Right. 
He followed a lead very closely, and it was that this group of three men committed the murders while high on drugs and dumped the murder weapons, and he even went so far as to announce that he intended to arrest these subjects, and then it was just crickets. No arrests were made, the names weren't released, it was out of the news as soon as it was in the news, no one heard of it again. So we'll leave that there. Okay. In 1989, so we're fast-forwarding quite some years here. Right. The semen-stained pillowcase from Michelle Gousset was sent for testing now that technology had advanced a bit. Of the five indicators that they were looking for to yield a complete match, only three were visible. This meant that it pointed to Hart, but it couldn't conclusively say that this was his DNA. Okay. But it did sure as hell look like it. Okay. Now, years pass, and a new biologist, her name's uh, Andrea Fielding, she took a look at the evidence on file, and she realized that only a few items were tested of the hundreds of items they had. So she okay. set out to test everything. Good. Okay. Then this new, new sheriff, Mike Reed, was asked by the parents of Lori Farmer to look, just look into it with fresh eyes. Okay. That's a fair We're open to any conclusion that you reach. We just want justice for our daughter. And so he does. He investigates this theory of the three guys that were rumored to have done it because the farmer family had heard about it and said, yeah, this was a thing. And then just as quickly as it was, it wasn't. So what happened? This is my kid. And so the sheriff's like, all right, I'll, I'll pick off, pick up where it had left off and try to figure out why it came to a halt. So, Sheriff Reed got all of the reports. He tried to get every piece of information that he could, and he was shocked once he had it all. First, this was very emotional. He had to read and see all of the evidence and reports, and he was a kid at the time that this happened. Oh. And I believe he had, like, daughters at that age. I mean, almost all of the investigators had kids either that exact age or older kids that he re- they remembered that age, you know. And how awful it was to look at the crime scene photos, to just be at the crime scene, to hear of everything that happened. And it was no different for him. Every person involved in this investigation has lasting trauma from seeing what was done to those little girls. Even looking decades later, it's haunting. And he's trying to look at this with fresh eyes to say, what's going on with this theory? So when he backtracks, he finds that a woman reported to police that her brother and two of his friends had come to the house covered in blood, seemingly high. Okay. And talked about those poor girls. They kept saying those poor girls. And he said it was, she said it was right around the time that this happened. It was like the next day or something like that. Oh, wow. So she's home and these three guys come like walking up the driveway. One of them's her brother. The other two are his friends. They seem intoxicated or under some kind of influence. And that's where we're at. Yeah. When they were interviewed, all three of the men pass a polygraph test. Okay. And all three have alibis. So when the sheriff goes back to the woman and says, are you sure about that? Can you confirm the dates? Because we were able to confirm all three of these men had somewhere they were. Right. So the woman breaks down and she admits that she had lied. Oh, Because she wanted to get even with her brother because he had sexually abused her before. 
and she wanted to retaliate. Oh, Queenie, just report your own fucking victimization. That would do it. So that sheriff before thought, oh, my God, I have a break here. Right. And I'm going to arrest them. But after he spoke with them, he realized he couldn't. And just as quickly as that opened, it was gone. Right. Well, and that's also like, you know, we talk about media getting ahead of the investigation. Maybe this is me. Maybe this is my personal boundary with it. But I would be like, I'm not saying shit until I know some shit is secure. Because it's a lot of people to give hope to, to take it away again. It's a lot of ways to get your name in the news. All right. Yeah. And the kicker is, and again, we're talking about Sheriff Reed, uh, who's looking back on this. He's like the sheriff of most recently looking at what other former sheriffs had done. Right. And finally getting all of this paperwork. So after she had admitted to that guy that you know, she lied. She broke Whoops. down. Yeah. The sheriff that she told it to still believed her story. And he tried like chasing a dead end. Like he was still looking for three men and he was still looking for all of this. And she even submitted to a polygraph test that confirmed that she was being honest when she said she made it all up. Ugh. Oh, so the n- new sheriff, right? The guy <laughs> that's looking at all the sheriff Reed, who's just getting to look at this stuff is like, what in the hell? Yeah. He did what he did right by the farmers. He did reopen it. He was really hopeful because he's like, this could be something. Right. Because we're under the impression that there's a couple of things here. Okay. Right. We're we're thinking there's a few people because there's two different shoe prints. Right. I got to I got to follow that through. Maybe it really wasn't heart. Right. But ultimately, he ends up arriving back to the conclusion that he had reached before, which is that it was Hart. Okay. Everything he followed kept leading him back there. So then a new investigation's launched. Oh, my gosh. In 2013, a childhood friend of Lori Farmer's had grown up, and she had actually worked as a family advocacy specialist for the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Amazing work. So... Of course, you know, she's an adult, and I'm sure that in a way that that's really awesome for the farmers to hear from her. It's got to be heartbreaking to know that Lori would have been that age at that time. Yeah. But regardless, she contacted the family, and she asked if she could help. Um, she would help organize a comprehensive investigation that only they can do. And she remembered this case, and she remembered the family, and she remembered all of this, and she wanted to see if they'd be open to them giving it a shot to which it was of course welcomed now this investigation included the fbi bau okay okay so criminal minds you know the one biologists lab techs law enforcement other investigators all different kinds of teams to all sit at the same table and say this is what i think and the lab techs could be like well if you've got this and this that rules that out because of here right and if you've got the biologist saying no because when i looked at that that can't be it right what if we looked at this thing and you've got all of the all of this brain power in one room at one table dude to be at that table that would have just to take notes dude amazing wow What a great idea. That's phenomenal. Now, what this did was debunk the theory of multiple attackers. Interesting. So here's how. First things first, the injuries to the girls. 
initially at first look looked like it could be multiple people because it appeared that there were multiple different weapons used right right some of the wounds were different than others if it's one weapon you wouldn't expect to see that right what it came down to was the belief that what was used was a small hatchet and that there was a struggle because there were multiple girls and that the angles would strike them but they wouldn't all be perfect okay so if depending on which side of the weapon you used you're going to get different shaped marks well i was wondering that especially with the big clunky flashlight that has a lot of different surfaces and curvature and marks and all of those things right so you could use the blade part to the temple and then you could use the top part to the back of the head yeah and the top part is going to make like a almost rectangular square shape like the post of it Mm -hmm. but the blade's obviously going to make like depending on the angle could either be like a curve depending on how you're doing it right it's gonna make a slice but it can look like all different instruments but it's really just different sides of it and if you think of like a frenzied attack like i'm imagining that denise was probably already bound right and laurie and michelle are probably like the ones awake and waking interacting then like he's probably swinging it back and forth Mm -hmm. i I just have to think maybe that that might be why there's multiple different things going on here and i think about it right so you walk in if Lori's first, I really hope she was not awake. I hope that was quick, easy, done for her. She did not have to experience any of that. Mm-hmm. But then between Michelle and Denise, Michelle had the six marks, right? Yeah, she had six blows to the head. So I'm curious, is it one, two, subdue Denise, three, four, five, six? Is it one, two, three, four? I think she's dead. Move on. Hear a noise. Five, six. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of ways that that can go down and none of them are good. Because ultimately we know that Lori and Michelle's core body temperature was pretty close. Right. But Denise's was so much warmer. So, so Lori she had was, died so much later. I mean, sorry. Michelle was definitely next, but. I, ju- I want to give Denise such... Oh, I want to give all of them a hug. I know. I just... I can't. My... Yeah, my brain is having a difficult time with this one. So, it is possible that it was one weapon, just one weapon used differently, which hadn't previously been considered. The next thing they looked at were the multiple shoe prints. There was one larger boot-style shoe and one smaller print that had, like, a waffle pattern. Okay. This made investigators initially believe or at least see the possibility of there being a second assailant, potentially even a woman because the waffle print shoe was smaller. Stop. So that was what initially they thought. Okay. But because we're ruling out the multiple offender thing, they're saying that in this new investigation that when they went over the interviews with the counselors, they made a discovery that hadn't previously been like linked before. Okay. When the counselors did head counts, they had to physically go inside the tents and touch each of them okay. to like confirm that they were yeah. there. So the morning after the crime, one counselor had reported that she was doing rounds to count them and she had entered the tent. Oh. She had a waffle pattern shoe print. Okay, that is so much better. I was thinking that it was going to be Denise's shoe. So that's helpful. No, and what they noticed about the print was that 
it was on top of the blood not in the blood does that make sense like it had started to dry a bit it had already sunk in a little bit and that that print was on top meaning it had been hours since the blood had been spilled to the step on it which was very different than the other boot print that had been walked in at the time it was all happening okay so there's that the next part that they tackled after they sort of ruled out the multiple offender or at least ruled out any evidence that made people think that there were multiple offenders there could have been i suppose but we really have no evidence to believe that anything we did have has since been debunked by this investigation they move into the dna testing time had got on more advancements had been made and also they recommended different labs so historically it had always been the state crime lab that's when it would test it but the state lab didn't have all of the new technology as some of the others right if you think okay, okay. anything yeah. related to the government's going to be a little bit of a delay there yeah and so the items were not sent to this other one that had this new testing the items had initially just been sent to the state lab because it had always gone to the state lab okay but it kind of should have been sent to this other lab and unfortunately the samples they had had decayed so much that there was really nothing absolute gained from this it wasn't a wasted effort because the profile they got from the dna was very similar to hearts right it had it shared right, okay. a lot of the markers but when they cross-referenced it with everybody every man there got tested right like the director's husband the this guy the that guy anybody that every single person that was a suspect submitted to dna testing right not a single one of them even partially pointed to them this profile they have from the crime scene excluded every single person except heart except heart okay but Hart couldn't conclusively, because it was decayed in so much time and right. all these things, they couldn't say it's 100% him, but, but they it, can say it's more likely than not him. It's 100% not everyone else. And yes, and every yeah. other person, there's no way it was. So he's the only person that like some lights went on for. Do you know what I'm right. saying? Yeah, absolutely. So this investigation led them back in the direction that it was this guy that it was still gene leroy hart after all of it after he was acquitted after everything he died there was no confession that came down but all of these people got in a room together took a crack at this and unfortunately the dna had it i mean by this point like 40 years but right there was something right there was something to be gained there was something to learn and it was that every other person could be ruled out and even though he couldn't be confirmed it was like most of the way there right so the aftermath yeah this is where we are okay the victims and the compounded trauma on top of trauma the victims weren't only denise milner michelle gousset and Lori farmer but all of those that loved and cared for them their parents their grandparents their siblings their friends those who would have someday met and loved and cared for them, mm-hmm. the families that they weren't able to have, the kids they weren't able to have. The siblings of the victims had to watch their parents grieve the death of a child. And only as adults with their own children could they even begin to imagine that kind of pain. And so having their own children was upsetting in and of itself to know how much they loved their children to know what their parents lost. Right. The families 
also don't have justice served in the way that they need. No one has been formally convicted of these murders. Regardless of how confident you may feel in someone's guilt, on paper, this is unsolved. This is still open. Right. And all of the other campers who attended camp that June in 1977 who were scarred for life after the murders, Carlo Willehite, who had found the bodies, later went on to become a police officer. Good for her. I, think I can't a, imagine that's not... I think a big piece of that was from this. Right. But the investigators that spent long hours looking at the carnage, many of them with children the same age as the victims, they're all victims in and of themselves from having to live and breathe that for so long. Right. And it's been more than 40 years and they are still haunted by what they saw. This has been a case that I've never been able to fully look into because every time I've touched on it, it's been too much. I can't imagine living that. All of the other suspects whose lives were ruined from it because yeah. their name got printed or they were suspected apparently was as good as convicted. Jack Schroff, who literally got death threats and phone calls, he was afraid to leave his home. Yeah. And again, was hospitalized as a result. And then we have the Hart family. Wherever you fall on his in- innocence is up to you. Wherever the individual family members fall on his innocence is up to them. But each one of them still has to live with what happened, whether they believe he did it or not. Yeah. And the kind of strife that that puts a family through, regardless of innocence, is huge. Kim Barker, again, the niece that we quoted earlier, um... She said that some of her own family members were suspicious of him and that they didn't believe he was innocent. And she says that they wouldn't have thought that without reason and that weighs heavy on her to be a relative of this, to have been impacted by this, for her family to have been impacted by this because a lot of people drew conclusions. And even though he was found innocent, he still went back to prison to serve time for vicious attacks on other people. Right. So it's all around just awful. I want to kind of go into each individual family here for a second because they've all been impacted differently many interviews that i saw with the family members did not have the gousset family okay michelle's family now this could be because they opted out of reliving the tragedy a decision that i would more than respect but as it stands today both of michelle gousset's parents have passed away oh her father frank died in 2018 and her mom georgianne died in 2021 wow and what i could find about frank gousset was that he was an army veteran who was a friend to everyone and who was an avid reader of military and history books and he would often donate books and his time to local libraries oh and i felt i didn't have as much as i would like to have to honor them in the way that i feel that they should be spoken about but What I can speak to are the efforts that the Gousset family made for other victims and their families. Okay. So in January of 1984, so this would be seven years after Michelle was murdered, the Oklahoman wrote an article about the work that Frank Gousset had done and the difference that it's made. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So... The Gousset family was disgusted and crushed at the way that they had initially learned the details of their daughter's death because they too had watched it unfold on television. So I want to read a passage of this article. 
The National Retail Merchants Association presented Gousset with the Fred Lazarus Jr. Award, an annual prize awarded to a member who, on his own time, has done important community service work. Gousset is operations manager for the Renberg's retail clothing chain in Tulsa. The $3,000 award will go to the Oklahoma Victims' Compensation Board, which Gousset helped found, and which he chairs. The board was created through the Oklahoma Victims' Bill of Rights. Gousset teamed with former Muscogee County District Attorney Michael Turpin to lobby for passage of the bill. Turpin, now State Attorney General, gives Gousset most of the credit for the bill's passage. And he said, quote, I believe that Richard Gousset was the single most important catalyst in passing the bill, which has become the model for the rest of the nation. That's amazing. And I want to include here that he calls him Richard Gousset. It's Richard Frank Gousset. Okay. And I think he did kind of go by both. So there is a little bit there. But everything I saw him talking in reference to him was Frank Gousset. But maybe to use his legal name, they put Richard. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, also from this article, it says Gousset said the bill authorized creation of a victim witness coordinating center in each of Oklahoma's judicial districts. The centers yes. help victims and their families understand exactly what's going on at each step of the legal proceedings in which they are involved. So victims have a chance to voice their opinions of sentences being proposed and plea, gar- plea bargaining procedures. Victim witness advocate work is so fucking important. And this this program that he's created or he you know chaired and was a huge part of the catalyst of is to make sure that not only do they have advocacy but they also have knowledge that someone is with them advocating for them in the courtroom saying listen to the family listen to the victim they have a right to speak on the punishment they have a right to know what's going on they need to know what's going on right and you know Allie and I have said it probably ad nauseum. We have a lot of education in this field and I have no clue how I would get through any kind of legal proceeding, criminal, civil, fucking whatever, without literally years of education. So I can imagine how isolating and confusing and alone it has to feel to not only be processing a trauma and a victimization of your own, but doing that in a world that's entirely foreign without anyone to help you speak the language. For sure. And not only that, but this actually gives the families, they get moral support, but they also get like counseled. Good. Which oh, is gosh, amazing. Good. Yeah. And the Victims Bill of Rights also created the Victims Compensation Board, which since October 1981 has handed out money to crime victims to help them deal with the cost of being a victim. Damn. And state courts assess fees from convicted criminals to fund the compensation board. So the fees that a defendant has to pay. I love that. Some of that goes to this. And I thought that this was really interesting. Gousset said, and this is a quote by him, by the dad. The victim didn't really have any rights. A victim could get his face beaten in and then be liable for the bills. Meanwhile, the guy that did it's getting free medical care. Yeah, he's not wrong. And he's not wrong. And he said, you can't replace a life, but at least you can say we care. Yeah. And I have to say, pure goosebumps. I am one large singular goosebump right <laughs> now. It is so incredible that they were able to, in the face of what was their greatest fear in the world, put so much good back into the world. And the Goose family believed the jury got it wrong. 
they believed yeah. that it was hard so not only did they lose their daughter but they also felt failed by the system that was supposed to see that justice was served and the resilience and the strength that they maintained to help other families hundreds of other families under circumstances as horrific as their own was inspiring they pretty much turned their greatest nightmare into something that motivated them to make vital changes and i would give them hugs and shake their hands if i could and i just hope that they are at peace and able to hold michelle in their arms again yeah because they should both be with her they all deserve that to speak further on the milner family i want to highlight what her dad accomplished before he passed away okay You may remember that I mentioned in episode one that he was a police officer in Tulsa. Yeah. He continued to do that work, which he was very passionate about for 31 years. That's amazing. And that's hard. He earned a Medal of Valor um, for his part in stopping an armed and dangerous criminal who had shot and killed his fellow officer right in front of him. Shit. So, again, trauma on top of trauma. He retired from the job in October of 1996, but just four months later on Valentine's Day, he passed away of a heart attack. He was only 53. That's so So young. Not only did this family grieve the death of their daughter, Denise, but then he died an untimely death and in front of them. And Denise's mother, she's still alive. Um, I can hope that the dad and Denise are just saving a seat for Betty when it's her time. But Betty Milner could not bring herself to go to the gravesite for decades. Yeah, she I get never that. saw Denise's gravesite. Not until 2016 did she feel that she was able to go. Wow. Because this is where her husband and her daughter were buried. Wow. She went with her daughter, um, who never knew Denise, Ugh. and her granddaughter, who Crystal named after Denise. Stop, I'm going to cry. <laughs> which is very sweet. Yeah. So I believe that the Milner family had a child after Denise passed away. And so this is the one that went with her with her own child. Okay. Lastly, in terms of the family aftermath, I'd like to talk about Lori Farmer's parents. Okay. Her parents are Sheila and Bo. We have a lot of quotes from them. They are very active, very um, talkative, especially Sheila. She is... Like, in her late 70s right now, and you wouldn't know it. She's a hot little thing. Ooh. Um, but they also wanted to take action and put good into the world, despite the harm done to them. Right. They founded the first chapter of Parents of Murdered Children. Okay. In Oklahoma in 1984. They wanted to honor Lori in a way that could bring good to others, and it sm- snowballed into something incredible. People traveled from all over the state to take part they offered comfort, community, and support, as well as guidance to each other. They were really just there for each other. And she's also the reason that the Oklahoma State Constitution has protected the rights of victims and families to remain in the courtroom and be able to voice their opinion in sentencing. Amazing. So necessary. So very important. In October of 2022, Sherry and Bo Farmer were recognized by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, that same organization. Right. Um, and they were given the Hope Award. Oh. And Sherry had made a speech when she accepted the award, and I'd like to include some of that here. Okay. She said, This is really for Lori and Denise and Michelle, to our children, the ones that she had, the other four or five that she had. Right. 
To our children, you have lived with imperfect parents who have grappled with the murder of their child, but somehow, in the midst of it all, you have become amazing adults and we could not be more proud. Oh. So, Camp Scott, as it stands, 1977 was the last summer that the Girl Scout camp operated at Camp Scott. Probably a good idea. um, It never opened again. No more camps ran that week. No more camps ran that month. Not that summer. Never again. Yeah. The abandoned remains of the camp are still there. It's rumored to be haunted. It's rumored to be creepy. There's a lot of lore that comes with the sights of these kinds of things, and I'm not at all surprised by that. In 1988, it was sold, I believe, to someone like a private buyer who just allows it to be used for hunting grounds so people can just sort of like roam around. Um, as it stands today, the investigation is still open. Justice has not yet been served for Lori Farmer, Denise Milner, and Michelle Gousset. Wow. No one has been convicted of their murders. If you have any information, you are very highly encouraged to contact the OSBI at 405-848-6724. What's that again? 405-848-6724. All right. That is all I have for you for the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Wow. Well, thank you so much for doing all of that and living in that. Because... That was pretty terrible. Yeah, that sucks. It sucked to just have to edit let alone have to do the research to do it. I think you did a phenomenal job. Thanks, buddy. (laughs) But how fucking heartbreaking, dude. I think of each one of those kids. And yes, they were just little kids. And it's really hard to say, oh, she would have done this or she really wanted to do that. Why? Because the, the youngest was eight years old. When I was eight, I think I wanted to be, like, an astronaut on Mars dancing ballet. And you would have said, that's really what I'm going to do. Yep. And we would have said, you go, kid. Because I was eight. A baby. And so it's so difficult to say, these are all the things, but we know what everyone who loved them didn't get to have with them. Right. And I just feel like that premonition, that feeling, that uneasiness, that... I'd venture to say they probably all felt. Yeah. Breaks my heart because it was so needless. It didn't have to happen. If the camp had been set up a better way, it would have been less likely. But I'm not going to say that it's... The only person responsible for the murders is the person who murdered them. Yep. But a lot of steps could have been taken to make sure that that person wasn't anywhere near them. Or had a significantly harder time trying to follow through a plan. I think, you know, I'm probably in team heart makes most sense. Not that we'll ever know. Um, Not without some further advancement that we could test and confirm. But as it stands. Nothing. I think it's him. A lot of people don't. And you know what? I respect that. And I I can only imagine what it's like to be wrongly convicted or accused of something. 
but I also see it from a standpoint of, I don't know these people, I just know the facts. And the facts to me point to the simplest answer, and he is the simplest answer. And I I hope that I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm wrong, then bless up. Justice was absolutely served the day he was let go for these crimes. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I'm not... I uh. another piece of it that really bothers me. Mm-hmm. He knew he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison anyway. Now right. maybe he thought he'd get paroled again because shit, why wouldn't he? He's a model prisoner when there's no one to rape and you know when he assault. had when he had thirty years he got not even three. So if you get three hundred years, you may maybe do ten. Right. So maybe he difference? thought he had a chance of getting out. I don't know. But if you are looking at what is basically a life sentence of 300 years, um, why the fuck wouldn't you just own up to it? Well, because if he did it, and it's a statement, he's trying to make a fucking statement. It's just like, I don't know. I mean, I know obviously somebody capable of something like that doesn't give two shits about the victim's families. Right. But... Ever since I started researching this, I have literally thought of them every single day. Yeah. And how amazing that they could turn what was so awful into something not awful that helps other people going through the worst things that they can imagine that they also had to endure. Right. And while I'm glad that those programs exist now, did their kids have to die for that? No. No, it would have been great if someone said, hey, this is a really important thing we should be doing. And also, maybe there should be security where there's babies running around with literally not even a fence. Yeah. Not even a door. And the the people that are, like, local knew these grounds so well, whereas, like, if you're this kid that came up from Tulsa, you've never seen any of this before. How are you going to navigate that? And the parents... If they had to go to the actual camp and not just drop them off at the headquarters, many of those parents wouldn't have let their kids stay there. Well, yeah. They would have said, wait, my kid's going to be all the way over where? And the adults are where? And how many of them are there? And how many of them are you? Or how many of you are there? Right. Where are the adults? Where's all of this? There's no security. There's no lights here. They can't contact me. I don't think so. You know what? <laughs> we'll go camping together some other time at a different place. Like an actually good local Girl Scout camp. That parents can see. Yeah. Before you leave it's your in- child there. It's encouraged. And in fact, at a lot of them, you can go with your parents. That's so cute. Because um, age is like bonding, but... B, like, if it's Little done well, moms. there's nothing to hide. Little troop yeah. moms. Mrs. Abel Dabbleson was our troop leader. Mrs. Abel Dabbleson, you, you cute little thing. I know she is so cute. Mrs. Abel Dabbleson says hello to all of you. Oh, Just so you know. <laughs> but, wow. What a... I mean, I want to call it a shit show. It's a tragedy. It's awful. It's heartbreaking how has it been so many years and they don't i mean they they could be grandparents now i mean they yeah i mean they'd be like 
what in their 50s young hip grandparents but they i mean could be. yeah they'd be young but i mean <laughs> like they they could have I mean, there's so many potentials. They could have had an really amazing career. You could have an amazing family. You could have both. You could have had travels or weird niche interests or fuck it. Maybe one of them got into like, I don't know, some weird stuff they had to learn from. But then they learned from it and grew because that's what life's about. And they were robbed of everything and every opportunity that life could have given them. Good, bad or otherwise. You know, maybe if they were still around, one of them by now would have had like a skin cancer mole removed. Mm-hmm. But maybe by now one of them would have had a fucking Nobel Prize. We don't know. We just don't and know. And frankly, knowing the three of them, it's probably the latter. I would say. They seemed like really fucking cool kids. They did. So thank you for doing this. This needed to be done. Thank you. But damn. Damn. How y'all doing? You, you hanging out? You doing okay? You hanging in there? If you're not, I would encourage you to take a deep breath, sit with a pod pet, read a book you like, take a look at our reprieves on our Instagram page. Abby, how would they get there? That is such a good piece of advice. You could get to our Instagram page by looking up on Instagram about time for true crime pod with periods in between every word. So that's <gasps> A-B-O-U-T period, T-I-M-E period, F-O-R period, T-R-U-E period, C-R-I-M-E period, P-O-D because podcast was too long. However, you needed to air out some of your feelings, talk about your theories, who you think was involved, what might have happened, if there's anything we missed that you were like, holy fuck, wait, that's important. Let us know. Send us an email. Um, but Ali, where would they email us? If you wanted to email us, you could send that to about time, the number four, TC at gmail.com. That's A-B-O-U-T-T-I-M-E, numeric four, TC at gmail.com. All right, you guys. I think that was... Part two of this case, yeah? Part two, last part, final, going to go pet Mia. Yes, go pet the pod pets. Give yourself some loves, a fuzzy blanket, glass of ice water. We hope that you liked what you heard. We hope that you would be willing, once again, just follow, subscribe, leave a review if you can. Five stars, hey. Share Um, it, tell a friend. We are so incredibly grateful for all of you. And while these heavy, heavy, heavy topics are never easy to cover, covering them all with you makes it definitely worth the while. So thank you. We love y'all. We love you. And if I look at my clock, that was about time for true crime. Bye. Bye.